morning, we continue to look at some of the events surrounding the birth of Christ, what led up to it, uh, how the story unfolded. And we'll be looking at a passage from Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 37, the story in which the angel comes, angel Gabriel comes and foretells Jesus' birth to a young woman named Mary. Luke 1, 26 to 37, I've titled them this morning's message, Breaking News. Breaking News. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this breaking news. You've all probably heard those words, men, maybe watching television or even listening to a radio program. Something that requires state, national, or even world attention occurs, and they break through and tell you to inter- and interrupt whatever it is that you're watching or listening to. Some of you may remember where you were and what you were doing when the news reports started pouring in on September 11, 2001. Thanks to all the new channels by which we can receive our news, it doesn't take long for us today to find out what is happening. It doesn't matter where it's happening, where it's, whether it's right around where we are here in Latham, whether it's in Albany, whether it's in New York State, across the country, across the world, it doesn't take, very, to take us very long to find out things that are happening in the world today. We don't have to wait until tomorrow morning's newspaper to find out the urgent news that happened today. We don't even have to turn on the radio or even turn on television because in many cases, our cell phones are a means in which uh, many people receive their news. And sometimes they get an alert letting them know about something catastrophic or something urgent that has just happened and the news that is breaking right right then at that moment. Either way, when there is urgent news to spread, media organizations, they know how to get the word out and to do it very quickly. They use big letters, they use bright colors, loud noises, everything they can do to get our attention. And it often starts with the two words, breaking news. Reporters may even take us live to the scene to give us up-to-the-minute information as to what is going on, what is happening. Something is breaking news because it is big enough that everyone should know about it. Over the last hundred years, there have been several instances where we have received breaking news, where a regularly scheduled program has been interrupted. There have been a couple people, there's probably a couple people here today who can remember the breaking news of September 1939, which announced the beginning of the Second World War in Europe. Some might remember the breaking news from December 7th, 1941, with the surprise bombing of Pearl Harbor and the point at which America then joined the war. Others might have vivid memories of what they were doing and where they were on November 22, 1963, when the news broke that President John F. Kennedy had been shot. Now, as devastating as some of these announcements have been, there has never been any bigger announcement than the breaking news that God was going to join humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. It was obviously a much different day and age, but in contrast to the things that we see happening today and how quickly news travels today, the announcement of God joining humanity didn't have the same fanfare that we may have thought, especially with how big of a thing it is. With how significant the birth of Jesus Christ was, you would have thought that such an announcement would have been announced to the entire world and for everyone to hear in the most extravagant way. But the news was first only delivered to just one person. It was news that would forever change the course of human history. News that would affect every single human being. And yet only one human was privileged to receive the initial announcement. 
The announcement is recorded for us here in Luke chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says in verses 26 down through verse 33. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, unto her Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The angel Gabriel brings this wonderful announcement of God's promise to Mary. But this isn't the first time that this promise was made. News of God's plan of redemption was actually made not long after the first man was made. After man fell into sin, all the way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, God offered a glimpse into his redemption that he was going to bring to man and that they would no longer be alone, that they wouldn't be left to their own eternal demise. And from that point, God continued to keep alive and continued to keep showing man that they would not be left alone. He continued to further plant seeds about his plan of redemption to mankind. And he did so through the Old Testament. He kept this message alive and kept reassuring the promise that he was going to bring his only begotten son into the world to save the world from sin and to give man the greatest opportunity to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. These were the words from the angel Gabriel. These words here in Luke chapter 1 were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We don't have the time to look at all of them. But over and over again, God reassured, reassured and reaffirmed his promise to bring in redemption through his son. In fact, there are over 350 Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning the Messiah. And even though the angel Gabriel's words were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, there was still such wonder. Even though they had already known about it, and Mary would have known that a Messiah was going to come, there was still so much amazement in the announcement, knowing that it was finally coming to a reality. When Lily was younger, and it was just her. We didn't have Elijah. We didn't have Levi. It was just Lily. She was an only child. We had the opportunity one year to go to Disney World. Ruthie and I made the mistake of telling Lily weeks in advance that we were going to go to Disney World. Now, if you have children and you have young children, you know just how horrible of a decision it is to tell them in advance that you're going to go somewhere that's fun and exciting. We never heard the end of it. Is today the day that we're going? The next day. Is today the day that we're going? No, not today. Is today the day? And just over and over and over, I was ready to cancel the trip altogether. We're not going at all. But we must have heard that question a dozen times. She knew we were going, and there was an excitement as she anticipated all of that becoming a reality. But let me tell you something. Nothing came close to the excitement she had when it actually became a reality. Christ coming to earth was not a brand new information. It was the present reality of that truth that was brand new information. The breaking news was that now it's happening. What you've known was going to happen from the very beginning is now actually going to happen. This was the breaking news. 
So as we take a closer look at this wonderful announcement, notice first God's messenger. God's messenger. Look at verse number 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. God often employs angels to give announcements to people on earth. And what a joy it must have been for the angel Gabriel to be used in such a task. Now, I often think about what it must have been like as God was talking this over with his angels. Okay, very important. Everyone gather around. I'm going to deliver the greatest news to mankind. Who wants to do it? I'm sure every hand flew up. Like, let me, please pick me. Let me be the one to go down there. This obviously didn't happen. Maybe it did. This is just me speculating as to what the scene in heaven might have looked like as the angels are, I'm sure, thrilled at the opportunity of doing this. Later on in Luke chapter 2, with the multitude of the heavenly host that surrounded the, the shepherds, what a joy it must have been for them to rush down and to deliver this good news to the shepherds. But the angel Gabriel is the first one to come and to bring this message. And I'm sure there was such joy and, and excitement as he's able to do this. Uh, this is the second time, in fact, in a year that God used the angel Gabriel to deliver a birth announcement. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel appeared to a man named Zacharias, and he informed him that him and his wife Elizabeth would bring forth a son, a man by the name of John the Baptist. And both of these announcements, what we see earlier in Luke chapter 1, what we see here in Luke 1 in our passage this morning, 26 through verse 38, uh, both of these announcements are significant. Just from the standpoint that there had been seemingly silence from God for about 400 years. The Old Testament closed with the book of Malachi. And then we have what we refer to as the intertestamental period, a period of about 400 years when there was no direct revelation from God. Though God wasn't speaking, his words weren't, weren't being written down. We, we have a gap in time from when the Old Testament closed and when the New Testament began. And now God speaks again. And what a way he interrupts what is happening here on earth with this incredibly wonderful breaking news. He comes out of silence and he delivers two wonderful announcements. And then the New Testament opens. Again, God sending an angel, Gabriel, to appear twice in one year, showing that God was once again revealing himself to mankind. Towards the end of the Old Testament, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to deliver an announcement to Daniel and letting him know of the redemptive plan of God that was yet to come. And now he's called to bring forth the message of Christ's birth, which, means, which was the means by which God would bring redemption to man. God could have chosen really any means to deliver this message. He chose, though, a high-ranking angel, one that stood in his presence. What a privilege it must have been for the angel Gabriel to be the one chosen by God to bring this wonderful message. But look back what we read. Luke chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this is where Gabriel was giving the message to Zacharias. And notice what it says here in verse 19 of Luke chapter 1. It says, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. What a great privilege. This angel, Gabriel, standing in the presence of God. What an incredible opportunity that is just to do that. To hear directly from God, he's being sent to earth to deliver this breaking news. First of John the Baptist and then of Jesus Christ himself coming and joining humanity in the flesh. He is chosen by God to do this. An angel that stood in the presence of the almighty God. 
is sent from heaven to earth. And when you look at what he is sent to say to Mary, he is sent to an obscure little town in Galilee to deliver the greatest message man has ever heard to a lowly young woman. God was showing us that his son would be the savior of the entire world. Not just the savior of the rich. Not just the savior of the powerful. Not just the savior of the noble. Not just the savior of the famous. Not just the savior of the prominent. But the savior of all who come to him in faith regardless of what they come from. Praise the Lord for that. It doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on, how little education you have. Christ offers salvation freely to those who come to him in faith. And it's as simple as that. So we see God's messenger. But second, notice God's vessel. God's vessel. Look at verse number 27. So the angel Gabriel was sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, verse 27, to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Not only did God send his angel to this little obscure town in Galilee, but he chose a lowly young woman to be the vessel by which his only begotten son would be born into this world. Now, as we mentioned last week, I spoke a little bit about how Mary was a spouse to Joseph, which, again, in that culture was basically equal to as being married. The husband and the wife, would join, uh, they, they would not join themselves, though, uh, to each other until after the marriage ceremony, so they hadn't been together yet. The Bible is very clear that Mary was a virgin, that she was a pure vessel to be used by God. And the reason that this is important is because had Mary not been a virgin, any child she would have conceived would have been tainted with sin. And sadly, there are many scholars today, many people who are studying the word of God who tried to discredit the virgin birth by suggesting that the word virgin just refers to a young maiden and not a woman who has not engaged in any sort of sexual relations. Now, if that were the case, the entire foundation of Christianity is destroyed. If we don't have a virgin birth, if we don't have Christ being born of a pure vessel, as the Bible clearly says, she is a virgin who knew not any man, then everything that we stand for, everything that he did is all tainted and we have no foundation, we have no Christianity. Without the virgin birth, we don't have the perfect sinless Savior dying for our sins. We have a sinner making great claims without any hope of backing them up. But I assure you that the Bible does not lie when it says that Mary is a virgin and there's no secret code to figure out what that means. It means what it says. She's a virgin. And even if you look at the original Greek, the word that is translated virgin from the Greek into the English is the word parthenos, which literally means one who has had no sexual relations. She was a virgin, or else I'm wasting my time preaching this. I can just go home and you all should go home as well. But I'm not. Because God chose a pure and an undefiled vessel to be the means by which to bring forth his only begotten son into this world. God's messenger, God's vessel, third notice, God's blessing to Mary. Look at verses 28 to 30. God's blessing to Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Now, what the angel Gabriel has to say to Mary, it confirms that it was indeed from God and it did indeed contain a blessing. 
We aren't told what Mary was doing at the time when the angel appeared unto her, but based on the context, we gather that she was alone. Out of nowhere, the angel Gabriel appears. He doesn't knock on our door and, and ask to be welcomed in. He just appears out of nowhere. Unfortunately, it was as sudden as when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 uh, after Christ was born. Uh, otherwise, Mary would have, would have really panicked uh, when, when they appeared. I mean, when, when we read about Luke chapter 2 and how it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and it says, and they were sore afraid. We don't see that necessarily happening where the glory of the Lord brightly shines when it goes from absolute pitch black of night to brightest of day. That doesn't happen here. But still, the sudden appearance of an angel is worth being a little bit fearful over. And Mary's response is interesting because even though we don't read about, again, the glory of the Lord shining brightly out of outer darkness, it's still not every day that you see an angel. She appears calm and composed and isn't initially troubled at the sight of the angel but the Bible says she's troubled at what he said. Again, look at verse number 29. It says, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. She sees him. She acknowledges that there's an angel standing in front of her. And she's troubled more, it says, at what he said to her, not at his appearance. What the angel Gabriel says in verse 30 shows that Mary was blessed by the grace of God. Look at what it says again. It says, and the angel said unto her, verse number 30, fear not, Mary. For thou hast found favor with God. Now, people like to focus on verse number 28 and make Mary out to be more than what she is. Verse 28 says, Hail, thou, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. People like to focus on this and again, make her more than what she's out to be. The Catholic Church has made Mary equal with God and for centuries has misled people with this false idea that Mary is full of grace and able to dispense grace and show favor and to those that worship her. But a simple reading of this passage makes it clear that God is the one and the only one who has shown her favor and he's the only one who is offering blessing. Again, he says, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. In verse 30, fear not. Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. God is the one showing favor. God is the one offering blessing. God is the one dispensing all of this. The angel Gabriel is not praising Mary for her worthy character, but simply saying that God has freely chosen to give her and to show her grace, and that is what made her blessed. None of us are worthy to even share the gospel to others. Do we really think that there was someone on earth who was worthy enough in their own strength and in their own abilities to bear and bring forth the Son of God? The angel Gabriel was telling Mary that she was unworthy in her own strength to do such a task, but God was giving her the necessary grace to fulfill what she was called to do. This means that Mary was a sinner because only sinners need God's grace and favor. So Mary was just like you and me. She was a sinner and needed the grace of God to offer her salvation, to bring her freedom from the bondage of her sin. She didn't have grace to dispense to anyone else because she needed the saving grace for God for herself. Therefore, she was only the recipient of God's grace, not the one who bestows it, not before, not even after. And honestly, this is evidenced by her response. Look again at what she says in verse 29. What happens in verse 29? It says, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now he has just said to her in verse 28, Hail, thou thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. She's thinking, does he have the wrong person? Does he not know who I am? 
Does he not know that I'm not worthy to do anything? That I'm not highly favored? Mary doesn't respond with pride or arrogance saying, you know what? You found the right person. You are at the right home. Finally, someone recognizes how perfect and worthy I am in the sight of God. No. But rather with humility. The sudden appearance of the angel didn't trouble her, but what he said troubled her. Insisting she wasn't prideful, but humble, because she recognizes that she's a sinner. It was almost as if Mary thought that Gabriel had come to the wrong house, because she obviously didn't view herself as worthy. And she was right, because she knew enough about God to know that she was a sinner and not worthy to be a recipient of his grace. And that is specifically why later on she would lift up her song of praise to God in verse 47 and say this, she says, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Amen. Mary knew what all righteous and all believing people know, that she needed a Savior. This is why all genuine righteous people are troubled or they're distressed when they come face to face with God because they know just how sinful they are. There is a recognition that what they really deserve is eternal judgment and God would be just to give them what they deserve and then God extends his grace to us. This is what Mary's state of mind was as she was standing before the angel Gabriel and she's thinking about what he has just said to her. She's trying to figure out why. Why has God chosen her to be his vessel? She's trying to figure out how to even wrap her mind around what she's seeing and what she's hearing, but she's also a little fearful. Notice again what Gabriel tells her in verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. As she's thinking all this through in her head, Gabriel reassures her that it is a good meeting. This is a good encounter, not one in which God is bringing judgment upon her. In her mind, she's thinking about what she, des what she deserves. And she's thinking, this can't be a good thing if God is sending an angel to visit with me. My life may be coming down to its final breath. Because God would typically employ angels to bring judgment. And she's probably thinking, what I do deserve as a sinner is God's judgment. And the angel says, fear not. This is actually a very good meeting. But I think in her mind, she's thinking about what she deserves and judgment of God is at the top of the list. And as she's standing there, standing, staring at God's angel, one thought that probably crossed her mind was, God has finally sent an angel because all the sin that I've done, even in this young life, has finally caught up to me and God is gonna justly give me what I deserve. And based on what Mary knows about herself, God is sending an angel, I believe. She's thinking to bring judgment and that makes the most sense. And the angel Gabriel really quickly assures, assures her that he is not sent to bring judgment but to reveal to her what God has done and that God has given her grace. Mary would go on to sing of how it was all God. Everything about it was God who had made her worthy and not anything of herself. She would praise God for taking someone unworthy, taking someone that was insignificant, taking a sinner and making them the object of his grace and the object of his blessing. Look down at what she sang in verses 46 to 49. I already read verse 47, but look at what it says here in these four verses. And Mary said... My soul doth magnify the Lord. And notice how, how God is the object of everything. God is the object of the praise. He's the one bestowing blessing. He's the one who's finding favor. He's the one who's doing it all. Taking an unworthy vessel and making her the one that God is going to use. 
My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. She praised God as the one who has blessed her. In no way was she insisting that she was going to then be able to offer blessing to others. The lesson we learn from Mary is that God gives grace and favor to those that don't deserve it. No one stands before God worthy of his grace, worthy of his favor. The only thing we're worthy of is eternal condemnation. But God has chosen to extend his offer of grace and mercy freely to all who believe on his son, Jesus Christ. You being worthy never has anything to do with it because the truth is that none of us are worthy of salvation. Not Mary, not any other person that's ever lived. Your qualification for coming to Christ is your lack of qualification. God's grace is not given on your worthiness, but purely out of his love. That is what makes it grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. You didn't do anything to earn it. If you now have earned it, it's no longer grace, but it's now payment for services rendered. You've done something, and now God says, here is your reward based on what you've done. Grace is unmerited. God says, you don't deserve any of this. You deserve something even worse. I'm going to show you mercy and not give you what you deserve, and I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. Here's grace. Here's salvation if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ. And this is what she's realizing. She's calculating. She's saying, what I deserve, and there's an angel standing right here, is eternal, eternal damnation. And she's thinking, okay. If this is how I'm going out, this is how I'm going out. And the angel Gabriel says, hold on. Something much better is happening here. Because God has looked on you as being unworthy. God has looked on you and the lowly estate of this handmaiden. And he has said, this is the one whom I'm going to use to bring forth my son. A pure, undefiled virgin. So instead of giving you what you deserve in judgment, angel Gabriel says, God has found favor and shown you grace. Here is his offer. What a beautiful picture. Notice fourth, God's only begotten son. Verses 31 to 33. So the angel Gabriel now tells her, this is what God hasn't planned. And behold, he says, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Gabriel wasn't just sent down to earth to deliver a wonderful announcement that Mary had received grace from God. That would have been awesome if it just ended right there. But that God's only begotten son would now be joining humanity and she would be the vessel by which that would happen. If the first part of the angel Gabriel's announcement left Mary troubled and in wondering how all this could be, the rest of the message was really going to move her. The thought of God showing her grace was almost too much for her to consider. Because remember, it says in verse 29 that she was troubled at his saying. He hasn't said, he hasn't said anything yet about how the Son of God is going to be born through her. All he said thus far is, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And she's thinking, surely something's off. Something is off. And then he goes on to say, fear not. Here's what God has in store for you. Mary doesn't know what to think. For one thing, she knows that there is only one way to conceive. And she hasn't done what's necessary to make that happen. And notice what she says in verse 34. 
Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? You know, for those scholars who think that they have broken down the Greek and they found that the word virgin actually means a young maiden, doesn't mean someone that hasn't had sexual relations, how do you get past this verse? Where her own personal testimony says, I have not been with a man, I know not a man. Conception isn't possible, Gabriel. I hear what you're saying, but I'm looking at laws of physics and laws of nature. What you're saying doesn't make sense. Can't happen. Never been with a man. Don't, it doesn't make sense. It cannot be possible. She was a virgin in every way. If there was any doubt as to whether or not she's a virgin, this confirms it. From a human perspective, Mary is trying to figure out how this could all happen. Unfortunately, the angel Gabriel doesn't give her much time to speculate because he quickly answers her question in verses 35 and 37. He says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Why is it so hard to believe that she was a virgin, especially when we see that with God, nothing is impossible? Why do we try and, and reason it away? Why do we try and let logic creep in and say, well, you know, this is what really happened because let's be honest, the virgin can't conceive. No, they can't. But with God, they can. Worlds can't be created. Anything can't be created out of nothing. And yet God spoke in Genesis chapter 1 and everything was created. Why is that so hard to believe? Why do we have to go and try and rationalize scripture and make it make sense to us? If the Bible says it, it's true. Leave it at that. How simple is it to just take the word of God for what it says? From a human perspective, I know, we try and we get in our way sometimes too much. Mary's even thinking, how can this be? Surely you've come to the wrong place. Surely you're looking for someone that's already pregnant because it hasn't happened yet. Can't be done. And he says, listen, with God, nothing is impossible. You're right. Scientifically, biologically, it cannot happen. God is not limited by the laws of science and biology. God has set the laws in motion. He's the author of all of them. He can act outside of them because he is the one who's made them. There are no laws of nature. There's only laws of God. And he's not bound by them. He can do whatever he wants. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Done. Accepted. Here he's explaining what he said back in verse 31. Verse 31, he says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He tells her the how. This is how it's going to happen. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. This is how it's going to happen. God said it's going to happen. Nothing's impossible with him. It's going to happen. You're going to bring forth a son. This announcement was a reiteration of Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 7 verse 14. Which states, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In a very few short verses, Gabriel describes a summary of the entire working of Christ from the beginning of his earthly life to the end. And we kind of read over it really quickly. It's explained in, in verses 31 to 33. But when you slow down and take a closer look, you see just how much Gabriel actually revealed about what Christ would do. And let's take a look at what Christ was going to do. First of all, we see the saving work of, of Jesus. Look again what it says in verse 31. 
And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. And that literally means Jehovah saves. Listen to what we're told in Matthew 121. Matthew 121 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. This was the message that was given to Joseph while he was dreaming. And it says, For he shall save his people from their sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's saying, You shall call his name Yeshua in the Hebrew, which is Jesus. He says, Which literally means he's going to save his people from their sins. Name him this because this is what he's going to do, is what he's saying. When the angel declared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus had been born, listen to how he describes Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. From the beginning of his earthly life to the end of his life, everything Jesus did was to bring salvation to mankind. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said of himself, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That which is lost is a reference to the entire world. Jesus entered the world of humanity that had no hope of salvation on their own. Many prophecies had foretold that there is a coming Messiah, but until the Messiah came, nothing with regards to God's redemptive plan for man would be possible. The prophecies weren't enough. We needed the Lamb of God to come to earth and to demonstrate that God the Father up on high offers salvation to man through Jesus Christ. That's, this is why when God sent his only begotten son, he gave him the name Jesus, which again comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, meaning Jehovah, God, saves. God was showing the world that his promises of old never fail. All the prophets that originally spoke of a coming Messiah who would bring salvation to all who believe on him had their words fulfilled when Jesus Christ was born. When Jesus was just days old, when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to offer sacrifice according to the law of the Lord, they ran into a man by the name of Simeon there in the temple who the Bible describes had long been waiting to see the one through whom salvation would be offered to mankind. And listen to what the Bible says in Luke 2, verses 27 through 30. It says, And he came by the Spirit into the temple. This is Simeon. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms. Now, this has always been a crazy passage to me. Because baby Jesus is, is a baby. He's days old. Parents are bringing him into the temple. They, according to the law, they offer sacrifice. They're walking in. A stranger walks up to them and takes the baby out of their hands. This is fighting. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm swinging at this guy if he does this to my kid. Days old? I'm even hesitant about some of you holding my kid. No, I, a complete stranger walking up to me out of nowhere. A crowd of people taking the kid out of my arms or out of my wife's arms. Whew, this is not going to end well. I don't care who you are. But I love how the Bible describes it. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms. Simeon just goes and grabs the baby, blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. God had told this man Simeon, and in some unique way, we don't know, but had revealed to him that he's not going to die physically until he sees 
God's redemptive plan through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's led to go to the temple at the specific time that Joseph and Mary are bringing little baby Jesus to offer a sacrifice there according to the custom of the law. And how he picked them out is only by the grace of God, only by the Spirit of God leading him to do this. And, and how God stopped Joseph. I mean, what's with this guy not protecting and jumping in front of Simeon? I mean, God had his providential plan in all of this, though. So we see the saving work of Jesus first, but notice, secondly, that we see the righteous life of Jesus. Look at verse 32. It says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Now, we use words today without fully thinking about what we're saying. We, we throw around the word great a lot, often to describe things that aren't so great. We'll tell people to have a great day. We'll respond to some good news by saying, well, that's great. We use the word so much that we've kind of watered down its true meaning. We've misused the word so much that even we'll use it sarcastically. Someone will tell us something and we'll say, oh yeah, that's great. We don't really mean in that. But we've kind of used it in such a different way that we've kind of forgotten what it actually means. When we say that something is great, what are we really saying? When the angel Gabriel said of Christ that he shall be great, was he using the word the same way we use the word today? No. Certainly he must have meant more than that, the way we, we typically think of when we think of the word great. I'm not suggesting that we stop using the word, but there needs to be a higher degree of greatness when we think about Christ and what he did. The truth is that no amount of adjectives can properly describe how great Christ is. But when we use such words to describe Christ, we need to understand that he is infinitely higher than our highest idea and our highest praise. We need to make this distinction because earlier in Luke 1.15, when the angel Gabriel is telling Zacharias that he's going to have a son by the name of John the Baptist, listen to what he says in Luke 1.15 of John the Baptist. He says, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Is there a difference, difference of greatness between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ? Absolutely! Eternity's difference between the two. I don't care if they were both announced by, the, by an angel, Gabriel. I don't care if, if, if you know, Elizabeth was barren, if she was old age, and her birth was miraculous. Eternity's difference between the greatness of John the Baptist and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Both are described as great, but clearly one is greater than the other. Now the greatness John the Baptist would have was granted to him by God. While Jesus was inherently great because he is God. When the angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus shall be great, he was saying that Jesus was going to show forth the glory of God. That he was going to be the one who would save his people from their sins. People would be able to see all of the attributes of God displayed through the righteous life that Jesus would live. Notice third, we see the godly title of Jesus. The godly title of Jesus. Verse 32 says, He shall be great. And he shall be called the son of the highest. The son of the highest. The term highest is very simply a title for God. Indicating that no one is higher than God. He is the highest. This was actually a familiar title that was used for God throughout the Old Testament. A title that the Jews would have been very familiar with. 
the Hebrew name for God, El Elyon, which is used a number of times in the Old Testament. It literally means the Most High God. It is used to describe the holiness of God. The fact that God is transcendently above everything and eternally above everything. That there is no one or nothing higher or greater than God that He will ever be. He is the Most High. Or as the angel Gabriel says, the highest. He is the highest, not just in elevation, but in power, in might, in wisdom, in intellect, in authority, in knowledge, and in everything. He is the highest. Therefore, when the angel Gabriel declares that the title of Jesus is the Son of the Highest, he is saying that Jesus has the same essence of the Most High God. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it explains it this way. It speaks of Christ. It says, who, speaking of Christ, being the brightness of his glory, speaking of God, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, that verse says, is the express image of the most high God. When Philip asked in John 14, Jesus, to show them the Father, Jesus responded this way in John 14, verse 9. He says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. For those who are still unconvinced, Jesus openly declared in John 10, verse 30, He said, I and my Father are one. In every way, Jesus is worthy of the godly title, Son of the Highest, because He is indeed the Son of God. And fourth, we see the authority of Jesus. Look again at verse 32 once more. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. What's interesting about this portion is that we have yet to see this complete. Everything else the angel Gabriel said about Christ, as we look back on it, was true, and it has happened just as he said. But the last portion of this verse has yet to be seen. Now, fortunately, we know how the story ends. We can jump ahead in our Bibles and we can read the very last book of the Bible and see that God's plan of redemption will conclude with the glorious reign of Jesus Christ on the throne of David as he establishes an earthly kingdom where he will rule and reign for a thousand years, followed by his eternal kingdom. Jesus came to earth with all the credentials to rule upon the throne immediately. Throughout his public ministry, he offered his kingdom to the Jews, but as a nation, they rejected him and eventually crucified him. However, Jesus told them that he would one day return, and he would return in glory and in power to establish his kingdom, and we read about all that in Revelation 19 and 21. The writers of the Old Testament, they were all looking ahead to Christ's coming kingdom. In Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, David wrote about it. He said, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. God was confirming it there. God even confirmed it with David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16. He said, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Remember, Jesus is from the line of David which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. 
God was telling David that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as confirmed by the genealogies of Matthew and of Luke, would sit upon the throne of David forever. In Revelation 11, verse 15, it states, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is coming a day when the authority of Jesus Christ will be on full display for all to see. In so many ways, the breaking news the angel Gabriel delivered to Mary is more significant than any news bulletin that you will ever see or you'll ever hear. In just a few verses, the angel Gabriel summarizes God's incredible plan for Jesus Christ to bring redemption from mankind. He summarizes everything from the birth of Christ even until the eternal state of Christ when he's sitting upon his final throne. With as much excitement as we have, as we're able to look back on what Jesus Christ, as he was born there in Bethlehem, and all that he fulfilled in his first coming, let us also not lose sight that part of the prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. Let us live with joy as we anticipate the rest of those glorious words coming into completion. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe a hundred years from now, it certainly seems like it's getting closer and closer. But either way, what God has deemed true will indeed be true. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every, every last bit of it is true. Lord, I'm so thankful that we have your revelation to man in the Bible. And Lord, and I'm thankful that we can hang on every single word. Don't have to question whether or not part of it is true or part of it isn't. But Lord, as we look to you and, and trust, Lord, that indeed your plan has come into fruition and we've seen as we look back, Lord, that these words have been fulfilled and we also see that there are some that are left unfulfilled. Lord, we can rest with full confidence. Just as the prophets of old were looking ahead to something that was going to happen and Lord, the day came when those things happened. There are things that are still yet in our future. But what a glorious, confident expectation we have. What a hope we have as we look ahead to the rest of your word being fulfilled exactly as you have said it will. Lord, may we rejoice together as we look back at what Christ has done, as we look ahead to what he has yet to accomplish. In his precious name we pray. Amen.